Good morning, and Happy New Year. Happy Church New Year, that is. As most of you know, today marks a new year on the liturgical calendar with the beginning of Advent. Doesn't it seem crazy that we're already in Advent? Seems like yesterday we were complaining about the sweltering summer heat and hoping that we could just make it to the start of school. But now that we're finally getting some cold air, we're now just hoping that we can make it to Christmas break with our sanity intact. While we sing it's the most wonderful time of the year, many of us are already probably feeling like Ellen Griswold when she remarked, I don't know what to say except it's Christmas and we're all in misery. Yes, this time of the year does indeed bring a whirlwind of competing emotions. The thrill of the season mixed with the gift of gift, a rush of gift shopping, the end of semester anxiety and the endless holiday parties. And the backdrop behind all of this activity is the quiet season of Advent, which each year waits for us, inviting us to prepare, to anticipate, to expect that God just might show up in the midst of the chaos of everyday life. And yet, despite this needed pause, I find that Advent, like most of our liturgical celebrations, becomes almost routine. After all, we already know the story, don't we? We know the end game. So what's up with all of this watching and waiting when we already know what's going to happen? The youth and I, we were discussing this on Wednesday night, that Advent has a tendency to sneak up on us. And when it arrives, we have a choice to make regarding our approach to the season. We can tell ourselves that we already know the story and we can politely decline the invitation to pay attention or we can once again dive into the greatest story ever told, allowing ourselves to be open to the idea that perhaps this isn't a story that just merely happened a long time ago, but rather one that is still happening here and now. A story that if we're open to it, just might change our lives anew. My family and I, we traveled to Alabama for Thanksgiving this year. And one of my favorite parts of that time with my extended family are the stories that we tell. I'm sure that most of you know the stories I'm talking about. The ones that you tell at every family gathering, the ones that you've heard a million times and yet each time that you hear it, you laugh, you cry, the same as if you had heard it the first time. And every family has a character or two that seem to dominate these stories. And for me and my family, that was my pawpaw, TJ. Now, TJ is no longer with us, but when he was here, he was about as Alabama as you can get. Hardworking, straight shooting, stubborn as a mule. The stories that our family tell about my grandfather are the stuff of legends. But during our latest Thanksgiving gathering, my family told one that I hadn't heard in a while. One summer day, Papa was out working on the farm, and as you can imagine, in Alabama, it's hot as blazes. And so after a long day's work, he came in to find something cold to drink. 
And after making his way over to the refrigerator, he finds a clear bottle that looks like it has water in it, except it's not water. It was a bottle of moonshine that someone had stuck in the fridge. And so Paul opens the bottle, takes a swig, coughs, clears his throat, and then says, Woo! I wonder what spring that came from. I love that story, not just because it makes me laugh, but because it brings me back to a place in my memory where I recall an experience with my grandfather that resonates a little bit different as a grown-up. Sometimes it's the stories that we've heard over and over that we need the most. Stories like these provide the power of perspective allowing us to re-enter and to re-experience them from different vantage points that bring new insight and wisdom to our lives. They also allow us to see with fresh eyes details that we might have skipped or missed after that first reading or hearing. For instance, like in my grandpa's story, where did the moonshine come from and who made it? Something's not adding up. Something's not fitting. And speaking of things that don't quite fit, we come to our gospel text today. You might have noticed as Julie was reading the text that this isn't exactly an Advent text. In fact, Mark 13 in its entirety is often referred to as the little apocalypse because nothing says Advent like apocalypse. Usually we are in the early portions of the Gospels retelling that story of the journey toward Bethlehem, preparing our hearts and our minds for the coming of the Christ child. But here the lectionary throws us something of a curveball. Now perhaps this is intentional. After all, we've talked about how this season is one in which we can sometimes be guilty of going through the motions until we arrive at the manger. Perhaps it's inserting a text like this that's not only out of liturgical order, but one that is as odd and as obscure as this one causes us to perk up just a little bit. We might be expecting stories about angels and dreams, but instead we get warnings about the sun being darkened and stars falling from the sky. By itself, it's a bizarre text, but to read it during Advent... It all just seems out of place. That is, unless we consider our place in the story. Martin Copenhaver notes that in one important aspect of this passage, it is entirely fitting because it places us squarely with those who awaited the birth of the Messiah. Neither those who awaited the first coming of the Messiah nor those who now await his return know when he will appear. While we may know the Advent narrative, those who first experienced it had little to no knowledge of what or who was coming. Sure, there were prophecies and signs of God's activity in the world, but much like you and I today, women and men in the ancient Near East were caught up living and working and trying to simply survive each day. Surely there were hopes and dreams that they had that surely somebody somewhere would come along and redeem their situation, but in terms of there actually being evidence that such a thing was about to happen, 
was scant at best. In this sense, when we arrive at Mark, 12, Mark 13, 24 through 37, we find ourselves thrust into a situation that is not unlike that first Advent audience. Jesus, in the passage that's preceding ours, warns the disciples that a time is coming when war and persecution will break out. When nation will rise against nation, families are going to turn against one another. There will be earthquakes and there will be famine. The earth will quite literally groan. And there will also be plenty of pseudo-messiahs walking around promising redemption when they're actually scheming for power. In other words, the outlook will be bleak. Does any of this sound familiar to you? While I'm not one to read into earthquakes and wars and famines as signs of God's imminent return, I do believe that we are living in times similar to the one that Jesus describes in our text. There are currently two major conflicts happening in Europe and the Middle East with the potential threat of more conflict in Asia. And of course, that doesn't even account for the infighting that happens here at home. Natural disasters strike with regularity across the globe. And we have a slew of options that we could choose from when it comes to politicians, influencers, and many more who have Messiah complexes over-promising and under-delivering. We, too, live in bleak times. And yet, when we read Mark 13, we are challenged to find hope amidst the chaos. Apocalyptic literature, which this, which what's going on in our passage in Mark 13, it usually gets a bad rap because of its proximity to end times theology. But the reality is much different. Caroline Lewis reminds us that at the heart of apocalyptic literature is encouragement and hope. Apocalypse quite literally means to unveil to lift the lid off of something, to shine light onto hidden things, to reveal. And Jesus in our text is unveiling the harsh truth that dark times are indeed coming. But amidst the chaos and confusion, he also says that a light will break forth like the dawn. And it is those who are awake and alert who will recognize it. Thus the invitation to keep awake, to not fall asleep or be led astray, to pay attention. Because it is precisely when it feels like you're on your own that God is up to something. When it feels like the world has gone crazy and despair is our only option, keep your eyes open. Because that is when God is about to do something amazing right before your eyes. In the film, The Shawshank Redemption, lead protagonist Andy Dufresne is sentenced to life in prison, even though he's innocent of his crimes. And it's clear from the outset that Andy is different from his fellow prisoners. He mostly keeps to himself, but eventually he befriends the narrator and the prison smuggler, Ellis Boyd Redding, or 
as he's simply known in the film, Red. Over time, the two become close friends, and because of Red's reputation within the prison and Andy's good behavior, the two earn prominent roles in the system. And one of Andy's roles is serving as the prison librarian. One day after receiving a shipment of items from the state of Maine to help populate the prison library, Andy takes a record, plays it over the prison PA system, and enrages the warden. So much to the point that he sends him to the hole or solitary confinement for two weeks. But upon his exit from his solitary confinement, he joins Red and his friends at lunch where they discuss his actions and whether or not it was worth it for the two-week punishment. And Andy explains that the music that they heard over the loudspeakers was the same music that he carried with him in solitary confinement. That the music lives inside of him, in here and in here. The others are confused, and Andy explains that there are places in this world that are not made of stone, that there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch, that's yours. And his friend Red looks at him confused again and says, what are you talking about? And he just has one word, hope. And Red sternly replies, listen here, my friend, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope will drive a man insane. It's got no place on the inside, and you better get used to that idea. I wonder this morning, have we gotten used to that idea as well? Worn down by years of bad news, broken dreams, unmet expectations. I wonder if it's not just easier to walk through the world like Red and his fellow inmates, accepting their fate. After all, while we're not locked behind bars, we are imprisoned. Imprisoned by our feelings of inadequacy feelings of self-hatred and our discontent with the status quo. We've been conditioned to accept our role as slaves in the great machine of progress which churns ever on while we slowly are lulled to sleep. And in our catatonic state, we choose to merely exist rather than to live abundantly. And friends, this is precisely why we need Advent. Because Advent comes along during our winter slumber and it beckons us awake. To heed the call of Mark 13, to be on guard, to be alert because God is up to something and knowing when and how it's going to happen is not what's important. What's important is that we pay attention. That we live with eyes wide open to the possibility that God just might show up when we least expect it. That we hold on to the hope that resides within the recesses of our heart and when the walls are caving in and we feel like we just might collapse from the strain of this world to remember God's promise that deliverance is coming. Hope's got no place on the inside. 
except Advent proclaims the exact opposite. Christ shows up in our self-made prisons and provides a path toward the light of day, a light out of shame and despair that emerges in the open expanse of grace where the possibilities are endless. It seems that Advent is bound and determined to make fools out of every single one of us because only a fool hangs on to hope in the midst of utter despair. Hope is indeed dangerous, but it's only dangerous because it's revolutionary. Hope is dangerous because it's stubborn enough to see light amidst darkness, joy amidst sorrow, life amidst death. Friends, I don't know where you're at this Advent season, but if you're like me, I'm guessing that you're probably pulling into the church New Year on fumes. Tired, glazed over by stress, overwhelmed with responsibility, and then you turn on the news and you discover all of the heartbreak that surrounds our world. Sometimes it's just a bit too much. And in times like these, nobody, and I do mean nobody, would, un- would fault you for unplugging, for disengaging, for simply going and deciding, I'm just going to slump through life. Because the burden is too heavy. The responsibility too great for any of us to truly make a difference in the world, at least to what we're told. But Anne Lamott reminds us that hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and you try to do the right thing, dawn will come. You wait and you watch and you work. You don't give up. Maybe this Advent season, all that is required of you and I is that we are open to the idea that no matter how overwhelming our situation may be, light is coming. Maybe we're not required to do anything extra this year, but to simply stay awake, to faithfully keep showing up, trying our very best to love our neighbors as ourselves and placing our hope in the one who has come and will come again. Maybe all that's needed this Advent is that we remember that hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Amen.